Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And as you'll know if you've listened before, this show is completely COVID-free. We highlight the fun and weird science we found over the last couple of weeks that has nothing to do with the pandemic. So this is your chance for one short hour to slip into the marshmallowy safety of cool space facts and weird animal discoveries and try to forget about what else is going on out there. Yeah, you may have noticed a slight bias in uh, the the science that we tend to cover, which very definitely reflects the things that we we tend to be interested in ourselves. There's a lot of animals and there's a lot of space. Oh, yeah, but it's been a good week for both of those. Yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but it's been a good week for animals and space science. Yeah, so essentially there's going to be no change in the normal order of things. They know what they're here for. Science of the Week Yes, it's that time of the show when we find out just how little a scientist knows about science in the news. Well, specifically this scientist, Andrew. Actually, I'm being unfair. Last time you got four out of five. Is this going to be the week that you break into the hallowed halls of full marks or is it like no. the Curse of the Starbaker? No, uh, much more like Curse of the Starbaker. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows? Only time will tell. Are we cleared for launch? Yes. I, I feel like that might well, be a clue as to yeah, what's coming. Yeah. Number one. On the 18th of February, NASA landed a new rover on Mars. What is it called? Perseverance. Yes! Okay, one out of one. We're doing well. We're keeping it strong. It's called Perseverance, just like you in this quiz each week. (laughs) And it's very exciting. It completed a textbook landing in the Jezero crater on Mars, and it has started its job to collect data so that we can learn more about whether there was ancient life on the red planet. Really cool, isn't it? It's really cool. I love, I just find it so baffling that like from Earth, Mars looks like a tiny little light in the sky. And actually, it's an entire planet. And right now, there's a little rover up there that we've sent all the way there that's now just roaming around the surface sampling stuff. And not just one. Curiosity is still out there. Everyone's forgetting about curiosity, okay? But perseverance. So the mission was launched from Earth in July 2020. And last week, everyone waited with bated breath while it was deployed onto the surface during a landing that was referred to as... Seven minutes of terror. Have you heard that? (laughs) No, I hadn't actually. (laughs) I saw something saying that the landing was the most dangerous part of the mission. Yeah, Um, it was basically the speed it was going at. It was just like plummeting through this atmosphere. I mean, I say plummeting. It was really highly controlled and you know mathematically modeled but it was super dangerous so it was the speed it was supposed to be going at it wasn't like it was sort of hurtling out of control no (laughs) no it was incredible the landing itself was yes okay it was really fast but it was just amazingly timed and calculated it's just i mean I think I've done well when I don't use a calculator for basic arithmetic. And then you have people like this working out how to land a rover on another planet. And it's like, you know what? Some people on this earth are meant to send things to Mars. Some people are meant to do podcasts. And here I am. (laughs) But yeah, we're all talking about perseverance. But we also need to remember, because getting left out, that curiosity was also a huge feat and has returned so much data I mean, Curiosity found out there was persistent water on Mars, that Mars's ancient atmosphere would have been able to support life, 
and that organic carbon is present in Martian rocks, which doesn't necessarily mean that there was life, but, you know, the building blocks are It's all are pretty there. cool. Yeah. But if that's what curiosity could do, imagine what Perseverance is going to yeah. do. So how long has curiosity been up there? Curiosity landed in 2012, so it's been like eight and a half years. Right. So it's had quite a long time to discover stuff. Yeah, I'm, but it's also, I'm sorry. Are we are, are we downsizing Curiosity's efforts because it's had a while? No, no, no. I no. I mean, actually, that's that's kind of longer than I expected. Just because I'm amazed it's kind of still going after that long. All right, yeah, claw it back. <laughs> so, what's the difference between Curiosity and Perseverance? Well, Perseverance is building on Curiosity's mission and has a few upgrades to help it out. So, it can collect rock samples and store them in containers to be picked up in the future. Mm-hmm. It has an X-ray spectrometer and UV laser to scan the surface in more detail. Wow. Yeah. Excitingly for your casual observer, it has a suite of higher spec full colour cameras. So Curiosity has seven cameras, two of them colour. Perseverance has 23, most of them colour. Fancy. I know. It has microphones so we can hear it going about its little business on the Martian landscape. It has various experiments on board, which Curiosity did too, but... One of them is called Moxie. Do you know what Moxie is all about? No, I've not heard about Moxie. It stands for Mars Oxygen In Situ Resource Utilization. This is the equipment to produce oxygen on the surface of Mars using just the atmosphere. Ah, so is this is this with the thought of like it will be the first stage to try to terraform Mars and get a human base up there? Yes, and in any case, if humans are going to go there for a long period, they're going to need oxygen. Yeah. Because the atmosphere on Mars is about 96% CO2 and only about 0.174% oxygen. Mm. So very, very different to ours. Nowhere near enough oxygen for humans. Yeah, which kind of makes the point that I, I heard someone mention a while ago. That that's basically, you know, people sort of say, oh, you know, with Earth being threatened by climate change and natural disasters and stuff, you know, we need to explore Mars because that's kind of where the human race can move to if we destroy Earth. And it's like, I mean, actually, the feats that it would take for us to make Mars habitable for humans is so much more difficult and expensive and time consuming than it would take to just you know, fix everything we've done wrong to Earth. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, if you want to look at this from a different perspective, even if we want to just go on long-term missions to Mars to collect more data, this is really useful for that. Yeah. So even if you ignore the whole, like, completely terraforming Elon musk style situation, this is just super useful for future space travel, you know? Yeah. Perseverance also houses a helicopter drone called Ingenuity. I love all these names. (laughs) So the drone is going to attempt the first flight on Mars. Ooh. I think we're assuming that seven minutes of terror is not a flight. It's kind of a it? hurtle. I, I think, yeah, as Buzz Lightyear put it, it's falling in style. Exactly. <laughs> Some quote Gandhi, you quote Buzz Lightyear. So there are more differences than those, but probably those are the most exciting for, you know, most people. Yeah. So basically, curiosity is incredible. Let's not diminish it. It's still out there doing a great job, chugging away, but... Perseverance is packing some flashy new gear and it is ridiculously exciting. So I'm intrigued. I've got a question. Why did they put the microphone on? Is it just so that we can hear what it's doing? Or are they trying to listen out for, I don't know, running water? Martians? Alien life? Yeah. (laughs) I think it's just partly to get an idea of the atmosphere. And also it'll give you ideas of things like weather patterns. Because you'll hear like wind and stuff Uh, like that. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. But... 
And this will come into my isolation recommendation. It's also got some fun SciComm applications. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think I know what your recommendation is going to be this week. Uh Uh-huh. Number two. Earlier this week, news broke that a group of thylacines, an extinct species of marsupial, had been spotted alive in Tasmania. What were they really? Cats? (laughs) No, not quite. A bit less sad than cats. Dogs then? Paddy melons, unfortunately. Oh, okay. No, yeah, I did actually see that. I'd forgotten. How much do you know about thylacines? They were, up until the 1930s, the world's largest carnivorous marsupial. And since then, they've been extinct. Although there have been odd supposed sightings of them in the wild since then that have all remained unconfirmed. But otherwise, I mean, they're pretty cool. Like, I think they used to be found across the whole of Australia and then more latterly were restricted to Tasmania because they were hunted out on the mainland, but have unfortunately disappeared because of human pressures. Well, you know more than an article that I saw being circulated last week that one of our friends Matt sent to us, which said that it's a dog from ancient Greece, which is completely untrue. Yes. Yeah, that was um, bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) If you saw that article, please just discount the whole thing. They are actually, like you said, an extinct carnivorous marsupial, often referred to as the Tasmanian tiger as well. The last confirmed thylacine died, like you said, in 1936. It was in captivity at Hobart Zoo. But since then, yeah, there have been a number of reported sightings of the animals, but none of them have ever been proven and some have been actively disproven. Like this one. Right. So this all started when the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia posted on its social media accounts that it had camera trap footage of three thylacines, two adults and a baby. The Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia aims to prove the continued existence of thylacines through compiling witness statements and photographs of suspected individuals. Okay, so they, they've got previous. They, they're very enthusiastic, that's what I'm going to say. You've they got want to, to believe. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I'd much rather people put their efforts into rediscovering actual species that have probably gone extinct than, you know, trying to prove the existence of things that definitely don't exist. What are you saying about aliens? (laughs) I'm not saying aliens. I'm just saying, you know, yetis and ghosts and bog monsters. agree to disagree. The camera trap photos acquired by the group were then sent to be inspected by Nick Mooney, honorary curator of vertebrate zoology at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. So, you know, we're talking about someone who knows his stuff. He determined that the individuals were not thylacines, but likely padamelons, a type of extant marsupial that looks a lot like a small wallaby. Which, by the way, looks nothing like a thylacine. So I guess the photos weren't that great. Yeah, I did wonder that when I saw a, you know, a very good photo of a padamelon. And I was like, I mean, if someone saw that and thought, ah, wallaby, I'd have, yeah, totally, enough, you could yeah. mistake that for a wallaby. But it looks nothing like a thylacine. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt these are very bad photos. I mean, like, no shade. Camera trap photos are just often not very clear. So this is disappointing, obviously, but not that surprising. On the other hand, the memes that have arisen from this little incident have been great (laughs) and, in my opinion, well worth the disappointment. If you haven't seen them, you do need to head over to Twitter. Just put hashtag thylacine in there and you'll find some. Number three. Which European volcano started dramatically erupting last week? Ah, this was Mount Etna. It is Mount Etna, which is Europe's most active volcano and is situated on the island of Sicily. Luckily, it is thought that it poses no threat to human life, but my God, is it dramatic. 
Like it looks just like the kind of stereotype volcano that you see in films or that you know you drew as a kid. It's been spewing bright orange lava and blowing clouds of smoke into the ash and sky for days. That's so cool. Yeah, you've watched all the videos of this, haven't you? I haven't actually seen them yet. Could I've you just like heard hear about me? It. The other day you were working and I was just watching volcano videos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was quite obvious. <laughs> At one point, though, its lava fountain was 1,500 metres high. What? I don't mean from sea level. I mean from the top of a volcano. That's ridiculous. I know. The videos of it are absolutely insane. Volcanologist Boris Benker told The Guardian that it was one of the most spectacular eruptions of recent decades, but that during Etna's 1789 eruption, the lava fountains reached 3,000 metres and lit up the sky so brightly people could supposedly read at night. What? I know. No. no. For how long? Like, are we talking flashes or like a continuous light of just... I think it goes in spurts. Yeah. But still. That's crazy. I know. It's insane. I think the reason why this blows my mind quite so much is because we live nowhere near a volcano. So we don't have this like constant... Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We're safe doing (laughs) that. We don't have this constant reminder of how powerful the earth really is. But then you see these images and these videos and you're like, wow, it reminds you of what's down there. It's so powerful. It's just, it's hot and melty. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a good description, yeah. Hot, hot and melty. Hot, hot, and, melty. hot and melty rock. <laughs> that could equally just be like cheese. I could but, describe yeah. a lot of things like that. Yeah. Also, how scary must it have been before we had all the understanding of what these things were and had the tools to monitor them? Yeah, I know. Well, isn't that uh, you're probably going to shoot me down on this because you're actually a classicist. But there's that myth, I assume it's a myth, that the Romans didn't even have a word for volcano and then Vesuvius erupted. And it's like... They they didn't even know what it was. So I think what it is, is that they didn't have one word for volcano. So they had phrases to describe a volcano. So the, the most famous account that we have of Vesuvius erupting in 79 AD yeah. was from Pliny the Younger. And I think he referred to it as a sort of burning mountain. So it's not that it was a completely unknown concept, but yes, I believe that volcano wasn't a word. Okay. Although the word that we have for volcano now comes from the Roman god Vulcan, who is the god of blacksmiths and fire and stuff. Okay, that's weird. So we inherited the word from that, but they it wasn't a word that they used. No, but it's pretty appropriate, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I think when, so when Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, people knew that something was going on with the mountain, but not exactly what was going so some people fled and some people just decided to wait it out in their houses till it went away Mm, i mean that didn't work choice yeah i mean imagine if you don't know what a volcano is and then your local mountain just blows its top off yeah crazy anyway if anyone hasn't seen the videos do check it out i think i saw some on the bbc on the guardian just some incredible videos of etna just absolutely blowing up Number four, scientists in the US have announced that they have successfully cloned an endangered animal and the resultant baby was born in December. She's called Elizabeth Ann. What species is she? I'm glad you asked what species she was, not what her name was, because I'd completely forgotten that bit. Not very rude. (laughs) She is a black-footed ferret. She is. And for a bonus point, I can give you the Latin name. Oh, do. Mustella nigriceps. Oh, that's cool. And the other thing I know about her... 
She's really cute. Oh, so cute. <laughs> she's literally, like, ridiculously I mean, cute. ferrets generally are adorable. Like, I think sickeningly black, adorable. black-footed ferrets are particularly adorable. Yeah, anyway, we should get onto the science. Sorry. Why did they clone her? I think to see whether it was possible to clone an endangered species. She's cloned from an individual that was frozen in, or died, and its cells were frozen in the 90s, right, or the 80s. Yeah. So she's identical to an individual that's no longer alive, and they wanted to see whether it was possible to kind of use the cloning technology to, I guess, boost population size and genetic diversity in an, in an endangered species. Yeah, so black-footed ferrets are endangered. There are believed to only be around 300 individuals in the wild in North America, so their numbers are so bad for a few reasons. Most of their diet consists of prairie dogs, another obnoxiously cute species. Yeah. But these are widely exterminated by farmers as a pest, so the black-footed ferrets don't have anything to eat. Then their prairie habitats are also being fragmented and degraded, and perhaps a surprising one, they're susceptible to a number of diseases, including the plague. Oh. Yeah, as in Yersinia pestis, the same bacteria that caused the Black Death. How odd. I know, right? We think it's gone, but it's not. It's just not in humans. So captive breeding programmes and reintroduction programmes alongside vaccination programs are being used to protect the wild populations but the problem is that their numbers have decreased so much that there's just a total lack of genetic diversity in fact it's believed that all black-footed ferrets in the wild now descended from just seven individuals oh dear yeah it's not good and this is a problem right because inbred populations are more susceptible to disease yeah so this is where elizabeth ann comes in Using the cells of a black-footed ferret that lived more than 30 years ago called Willa, the US Fish and Wildlife Service collaborated with scientists at Revive and Restore, Viagen Pets and Equine, San Diego Zoo Global and the Association of Zoos and Aquariums to clone a new black-footed ferret. But if you're going to make a baby ferret, what carries it? mummy of a related species yes because they didn't want to risk the life of an endangered black-footed ferret elizabeth ann's embryo was implanted into a domestic ferret who carried and gave birth to her Mm. you know because they're common right yeah they'll just sacrifice those willy-nilly but anyway the u.s fish and wildlife service say that conserving the ferrets in the wild is still their number one priority because i know that's the kind of thing that worries you right you'd be like well why spend money on cloning when you could just protect them in the wild yeah but that by cloning individuals like elizabeth ann they can reintroduce genetic diversity into the wild population to hopefully make them less susceptible to the problems that come with inbreeding so what are your thoughts on this yeah i was skeptical when i heard about it because cloning is not cheap and it's not easy and i would sort of i'm always inclined to think that spending that money on habitat restoration habitat protection education programs to to get people to you know look after prairie dogs and and therefore also after the ferrets would probably have more of an impact on conservation but i didn't know the thing about the fact that they thought the extant population today was descended from only seven individuals and so genetic diversity is actually a really big issue so I don't know. I Yeah, I can see the benefits as long as it's not coming at the cost of the kind of on the ground in the wild stuff, which when you've only got 300 individuals left is also really, really important. And also just because like America's lost vast tracts of its prairies, like so, so much of, of that habitat is gone. I think it's over 90 percent or possibly even over 95 percent. 
And things like the ferrets and prairie dogs and bison are sort of the the charismatic flagship species, which we can use to gain support for prairie conservation more widely, which is a really important habitat that will support all sorts of other things as well. So it is kind of crucial, not just for the ferret's own sake, but also for everything else that depends on prairies, that we're successful in saving them and helping them to expand. Although, if we're talking about awareness and education, this has done a huge amount for that. That is true, How many yeah. people do you think had never heard of a black-footed ferret before, and then they see Elizabeth Ann's tiny little cute face, Yeah, they read about it, and suddenly they know what it's all about? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very true as well, and hopefully that has done lots for, for awareness raising. Number five. For the first time ever in the UK, on Saturday, a particular species of cactus bloomed. What was it? This was the moonflower. Yes, this is the moonflower and it bloomed at the Cambridge University Botanic Garden just down the road. This is the first time that this rare Amazonian cactus, the moonflower, scientific name Selenocarius witty, has bloomed in the UK. What was unusual about the timing of this blooming event? So it was expected that it was going to happen in the evening and overnight and then it suddenly sort of popped open in the middle of the day when no one was expecting it. Yep, it was meant to happen at night, it started blooming in the late morning, and by 5pm it was in full flower. The Botanic Garden team had a live webcam trained on it for days, and people were waiting with bated breath, with thousands logging on every night to see if it was time. And then at the end of the day, it just went ahead and did its own thing in the middle of the day, flowering when people weren't even looking. (laughs) Rude. Yeah, I love it when plants and animals don't read the textbook. Oh no. (laughs) So the species is known for starting out with a beautiful floral scent, which then starts to turn to something altogether less pleasant. Apparently, it began by smelling like jasmine, although less strongly than expected, interestingly. And then, according to the Glasshouse supervisor, Alex Summers, as it faded, it smelled like public toilets. (laughs) I mean, like, I know we're all desperate for a bit of human interaction right now, but the stench of public toilets is not what we were after. No, no one's missing that. Can you imagine the excitement if the glass houses were open to the public right now, like they were in a normal year? Yeah. It would just be like the Titanarum all over again, except this is rarer, so people probably would have gone even more mad for it. So in case you're not familiar with the Titanarum, it's a rare flowering plant which occasionally produces a huge bloom that smells like death. Which might not sound appetising, but when the Cambridge University Botanic Gardens Titanarum bloomed a few years back, it was so popular that they had an enormous queue of people lining up just to pass it and sniff it. Yeah, and we were in that queue. I was going to say, no judgement, we were there. It was great. I regret nothing. And also, like, that's not just any old flower either. The Titanarum is, as the name Titan suggests, enormous. Yeah. Whereas the moonflower is, is kind of cool because it was the first time that one had bloomed in the UK, or it believed to be. And also, it's a cactus. But it's parasitic and it mm. just rather than being your sort of standard spiny, spiky thing in the desert from cowboy films, it lives in the jungle and wraps itself around other trees and basically parasitizes off them and then and then sort of blooms. And it doesn't you to look at, you wouldn't think it was a cactus. Mm. It's so a proper it's a sort of, weirdo. It's yeah. so strange. No, I mean, like no judgment on the Titan arm as well. We got a sniff of weird flower. I got a sticker. Count as an evening well spent. (laughs) I totally would have been there for this as well if it hadn't been a lockdown. But it was very fun. I like the hype that was created around it. And I like that they had a live camera on it. I I also enjoyed the photos they got of members of staff kind of gazing lovingly at it when they were sort of admiring it and and pollinating it and stuff. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I just thought... I think it's like their baby at the moment. (laughs) It is like... I mean, firstly, they had to show so much 
care and attention to actually get it to bloom and then secondly it's brought them so much fame at the moment like they they must love that kind of thing yeah and also it's just a great botanic gardens like i know that we might be biased but it is a really nice place and if anyone's in cambridge definitely go visit yeah strongly recommended well at the end of that round you got four out of five again amazing it's not the curse of the star baker no and also i'm gonna say i reckon that's the first time in this quiz where i've ever for all of them i've either just got it right or wrong there was no like normally i scrape a couple by kind of guessing and vague hand waving actually those four that i got i i actually just knew them which is very unusual yeah also the one you got wrong was a whole organism one how strange yeah very odd the tides are changing Journal Club. Right, so Andrew, what exciting science have you found this week that you're going to be sharing with me? Well, so one of the first things that got me interested in biology way back, back in the day. In the mists of time. In the mists of time was birds. Mm. So this week I'm coming at you with a bird paper. Okay, not surprising. In particular, I remember watching birds flying overhead in the garden and just being amazed at how they did it. Like, just the fact that these large animals could power themselves through the air and keep themselves up against gravity absolutely blew my mind when I was, you know, five. (laughs) Exactly the same reason why planes freak me out somewhat. Yeah, but, you know, the point is, like, we, we took thousands of years of human technology to eventually arrive at being able to kind of launch a plane. And then even after 100 years of flight, have not developed anything as sophisticated as you know birds and bats and and insects that the natural world has developed for moving through the air so bird adaptations for flight are quite amazing the formation of the wings from the forelimbs of their reptilian ancestors the structure of feathers to maximize their lift and aerodynamic performance and the fact that even their bones are hollow to minimize their weight and facilitate flight i love that they're so freaky yeah so cool isn't it but that's not all have you ever thought about how birds blink I have never thought about that. Should I be thinking about that? You should be thinking about that. Is this something that I should lie awake at night thinking about? No, because I'm going to tell you the answer. Oh, phew. So we tend to think of blinking as being something automatic. Everyone does it, and unless you stop to think about it, you barely even notice that it's happening. And that's because blinking is so quick that the flow of visual information into the brain is barely interrupted. And most of the time, the brain can fill in the gaps so you can still perceive a constant picture. I've become deeply aware of my own blinking right now. I know. Whenever you talk about it, you just, you, you notice. I was reading this paper and I was just thinking about the fact I was blinking the entire time. <laughs> I'm starting to notice the gaps. Yeah, I know. It's so weird. You might have broken me. It's fine. As soon as we stop talking about it, you'll forget it's happening. Okay. However, this becomes more problematic when moving at very high speed and the environment around you is changing very quickly. And interestingly, pilots have been shown to have shorter blinks and to blink less often during flight and landing when compared to everyday life. Oh, you know what? Right, this is going to sound like a really lame example compared to what you've just said, but do you ever shove your head out of, like... <laughs> <laughs> do you ever shove your head out of a car window and it's like, oh, my eyeballs are so dry? Um, Yes, I think I did do that as a kid, but I, I'm going to point out that pilots can't do that in planes. Like, the, the cockpit is sealed. Oh, no, that's but... a pretty good point. So why are they doing it then, if it's not the wind hitting them? Um, I mean, I like the fact that that was, your, that was genuinely <laughs> what you were thinking Okay, no, no, of. no. What I was thinking of was, like, fighter pilots, where it's a lot more, like, 
open? I don't think it is. <laughs> maybe maybe in sort of old style aeroplanes back in the day, like maybe in the 30s. I just like some... to be vintage, okay? Okay, all right. <laughs> Let's move on. You're in, you're, in your, you're in your vintage biplane with your balaclava and goggles yep. and a sort of scarf flowing behind you. Yeah, or, you know, shoving my head out of a car like a dog, but carry on. Also that. So the obvious equivalent to this in the animal kingdom is flying birds. Birds require a high level of visual attention and regular blinking could inhibit their ability to process the rapidly changing information about their environment. So in a paper published late last year, Jessica Yulzinski set out to test whether birds were able to inhibit their blinking behaviour during flight. She used captive great-tailed grackles, which, for our European listeners, are American birds that are about the size of magpies. Mm. So to record their blinking behaviour, she briefly attached two cameras to each bird's head. Wow. Yeah, in a setup which I can only describe as looking like one of those novelty beer hats that you get where you have the cans or the pints strapped to either side of the head. <laughs> Except that each beer was a camera pointing at one of the bird's eyes. And there's a great figure in the paper of a grackle looking rather grumpy at having this unsightly set up on its head. <laughs> they also noted that actually they could only use male birds for this experiment because the males are slightly bigger. And so the setup was actually too heavy for the for a female. Oh no, um, that implies that they tried. <laughs> I I would guess so. When it comes to doing these kind of things, where you put devices onto animals, there are guidelines for how what percentage of the body weight mm. that it's allowed to be. And so if it's go if it's something that's only going on for a short amount of time, it can be a higher percentage than if it's something that's going to stay on them for months and they've got to survive with it on there. And you have to be much more careful. So because these were captive birds, they could easily put them on and take them off half an hour later so it could be slightly heavier but it was still calculated to be too heavy for the female okay so they weren't just like launching female birds out of a window and just watching them drop like a rock because it was too (laughs) hard okay that's good to know no the flight was reasonably voluntary so in addition to the cameras on the bird cameras were also used to film the enclosure and show exactly when the birds took off and landed from a flight with the camera set up yulzinski then chased the grackles around an enclosure to encourage them to fly. <laughs> and, relatively then. Right? Yeah, that was the relatively. <laughs> and also recorded some voluntary flights. She lined up all the footage and divided it into periods of before flight, takeoff, during flight, landing, impact and after flight. And she then analysed the footage to determine the number of blinks and the length of each blink by the birds in each of the flight phases. Now, before I tell you the result. Do you know anything else about birds' eyelids? No. I actually... I mean, they do have eyelids. They do have eyelids. They're not like cats where they've got an extra flap, are they? Yes, Mm. they are. Um, And actually, lots of animals have that. We primates are actually quite unusual in not having a third eyelid. But lots of birds and many other animals do have it. Is it a protective covering? Yeah, so it's an inner membrane known as a nictitating membrane, Mm. which closes horizontally across the eyes and it's basically an extra extra level of protection now i always used to think that this was clear and therefore was used in animals that needed to kind of protect their eyes when flying or when underwater or in desert environments or whatever to enable them to see Mm. whilst effectively protecting the eye but actually it turns out that in most species this membrane is only semi-transparent and so they can't see through it and birds certainly can't see through it well enough to be able to fly it is just an extra kind of blinking mechanism i guess with that maintains some some level of sight an extra like set of window wipers almost yeah basically so when a bird blinks 
it's often just using its third eyelid, which is also something that's illustrated really nicely in this paper. They've got pictures from the cameras on the beer cameras on the head oh, of wow. the uh, of the birds blinking. Anyway, I digress. When Yorzinski crunched the numbers, she found that grackles exhibited a similar blinking rate before, during, and after flight, but a lower blinking rate at takeoff and a higher rate at impact, mm-hmm. i.e., immediately after they've made contact with the ground. But their lowest blinking rate came during landing. So when they were having to make quick adjustments to their flight in order to land safely. Like the pilots? Yep. They barely blinked at all. In fact, they blinked so little that she was unable to include the landing phase in the analysis of blink duration because there were only a couple of instances of the birds actually blinking whilst landing. Wow, And they were really, really quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Blink duration was pretty similar before and after flight. It was lowest at takeoff and during flight and highest again after impact. And in fact, the blinks, the difference was amazing. So the blinks lasted an average of twice as long before and after flight compared to during takeoff and landing. But the maximum values in each stage actually differed by one to two hundred times. So we're talking a maximum of about three to six one hundredths of a second during takeoff and landing compared to three to six tenths of a second before and after flight. Oh, it's huge. So, it's, yeah, it's a crazy difference in how, I mean, it's still a really, really short time, mm. but, you know, a massive difference in how long that blink is taking. But essentially, grackles were able to inhibit their blinking during takeoff and flight, and especially whilst landing, but then appear to compensate in the initial period once they've made contact with the ground. Mm. So it's almost like they, they can hold it off, but then they land. And they kind of just, I don't know, almost have, have to, to wet their eyes, wet their eye or, or reset a little bit. And I wondered about this because these were quite short flights that they recorded because it was just an enclosure. So I was I was thinking, what are birds doing if they're going on much, much longer flights? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, by a longer flight, that might be a flight of 10 minutes where you'd think they might be able to hold it. But like, what about migrating birds that are flying for hours and hours on end? Do they inhibit blinking for that whole time? Maybe they don't need to because actually once they're sort of up at altitude and, and going, there's not the need because they're Maybe. not in an environment that cha- they're that's not changing. Like changing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they don't need to be quite as aware potentially. Yeah, I don't know. But maybe like a, a goshawk or something flying through a woodland mm. could be on a reasonably long flight, oh, environment changing aware. permanently. You'd You'd sort of think they want to not blink at all, but... Maybe the eye's not adapted to that. I don't know. Maybe it is. New questions. Further research avenues. Very cool. But I just thought that this paper goes to show how finely tuned and well adapted animals are to their environment and to their behaviour. And I always love a study with an eccentric looking but effective experimental setup. And a grumpy grackle. What's your paper this week? Well, you know how I'm terrible at doing accents? Uh, yes. So, like, my Scottish sounds kind of Irish and my Aussie sounds kind of South African. Yeah. Are we going to get a demonstration? We are not. But it turns out there's a new type of accent for me to be bad at. Naked mole rat accents. Tell me more. Did you know that naked mole rats have accents, or at least dialects? No. Well, you do now. Okay. (laughs) Consider yourself told. Yeah. First of all, naked mole rats. Cute or gross? Uh, kind of. There's only one answer. There's only one answer to this. Cutely gross? I'll take that. I think they're adorable, personally. I realise that they're never going to be the belle of the ball. When you look at what animals humans find cute, usually, the features that come up time and time again are big eyes and lots of fluff. Naked roll... 
Roll mats. Sacred <laughs> 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 roll mats. <laughs> Are very good for yoga. <laughs> I can't believe I've never noticed a naked mole rat is a spoonerism of roll mat. Oh, God. Okay. Naked mole rats. Mole rats. Naked mole rats have neither of those things. <laughs> they look like scrawny, badly defrosted sausages that need to go to the dentist. But I think they're adorable. I've got a bit of a thing, as you know, for like ugly, cute animals. I love blobfish. I love eye eyes. I love these guys. Yeah. But even if you're not into their looks, you've got to appreciate them for their crazy natural history. What comes to mind when you think of naked mole rat lives? They're weirdly, weirdly inbred. Yeah. And they're basically the only eusocial mammal. Yes, they're eusocial. In fact, naked mole rats and the related Damaraland mole rats are the only known eusocial mammals. So eusociality, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically the most organised form of sociality. It's where within an animal society, you see adults cooperating to look after offspring, even those that aren't genetically theirs. And then you see multiple generations within a colony and specific roles where some individuals breed and some others perform tasks. So this is something that people might be more familiar with in honeybees, say. So you have the reproductive queen the reproductive males, and lots and lots of worker females. And and this goes to the extent of they don't just kind of help each other out, but they actually have physical adaptations to their role so that there's actually different physical casts of animals. So, you know, we're, we think you think of that quite commonly in ants and things where you get worker ants and you get queen ants, but actually mole rats are doing the same thing. The queen is bigger and yeah. physically different to the other. I mean, she, she looks a lot bigger than the others. They're found in these colonies in East Africa and something quite similar to that is happening, right? So you've got this large queen, she looks a lot bigger, she produces all the pups. There are then a few reproductive males who, you know, help her create the pups and then lots of females who help with defence, pup care and finding food. So these females don't i mean they look smaller than her but they don't look like a totally different species or no, anything no. It's, it's less different than in honeybees but importantly they tend to have underdeveloped ovaries so they can't produce any pups themselves they just look after the colony's pups produced by the queen yeah so they're pretty special but a study that was published in january has revealed another fun fact about them they have dialects Mm. The paper is Cultural Transmission of Vocal Dialect in the Naked Mole Rat by Barker et al. And in it, they write about how within colonies, the naked mole rats make chirping calls to communicate with each other. Which, by the way, is another reason why they're adorable. But moving on. The researchers recorded the various chirping calls from seven laboratory colonies of naked mole rats. And when they digitally analysed them, they found that different colonies had distinctive differences in their chirping calls. So the calls varied more between colonies than within colonies. They then ran playback trials on a few individuals where basically they played them the chirping from their own colony and another colony and measured their reactions. And they found that individuals were more likely to respond by chirping to chirps from their own colony. Mm. So they seemed to want to chat back to their own dialect, but not others. Yeah. So they weren't aggressive towards no. the other dialect. What they said was um, they basically put some individuals separately in mazes and they played them chirping. Mm. And in all cases, the naked mole rat would rather be in the room of the maze, which had some chirping in it. Okay. Right? So they always preferred to be kind of social. But 
if it was a chirping from their own colony, they'd actually answer. Right. If it wasn't, they'd just sort of chill out in the room. Okay. So they were responding more yeah. to other colonies. So yeah, so interestingly, although they seem kind of xenophobic, they're not trying to attack other colonies. Yeah. They're just not really interested in having a chat. This shows that not only are the dialects different, but they're performing a function within the colony. Like perhaps it's a way for them to distinguish their colony mates from their neighbours. But this also leads to the question of what sets a dialect? Like, is it genetic or is it learned by exposure to that dialect? Yeah. To find this out, they cross-fostered three pups from one colony to another and analysed their calls. And interestingly, their calls were more similar to their new colony than their birth colony, showing that these dialect differences are indeed learned rather than genetic. That's really interesting, because I was going to say, given that they're really inbred, and therefore, you know, colonies can, I, I would imagine, could quite rapidly become genetically a bit different because mm. because they're only breeding with themselves. Would, you know, that could potentially generate dialects if, if you know, there's some kind of genetic drift just on, on the vocal patterns. Yeah. But and that's I think not that's, what's going on. That's why this question was relevant to be asked, because it kind of could have been either yeah. in this system. And like I realise that a sample size of three is really small, but apparently it's really hard to get synchronised births in naked mole rats. And also there's a high likelihood that a colony will just reject a foster pup. So mm. this is a realistic sample size, basically. Yeah. So then the next question is, what actually determines a colony's dialect? Like, yes, pups learn it from the adults, but what makes one colony sound like this and another one sound like that? The researchers thought it might be influenced by the queen because, you know... She's a strong, powerful lady. And luck meant that they were able to test that. I say luck. Luck from the researcher's perspective, not for the mole rats. Basically, during the period of the study, one of the colonies lost two queens in succession. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's really sad, actually. But they didn't. The researchers didn't do that on purpose. It just happened. So they were able to study what happens to the dialects during what they term the periods of anarchy between Ah. one queen dying and another taking her place and then what happened once the new queen was installed which is a natural process it's not like a you know coronation service unfortunately although wouldn't that be hilarious yeah the little mole rats come together with their with the kind of staff and the crown and they walk up and and the little the new queen sits on a little throne um, with a robe that would be quite good right because she doesn't have any fur of her own yeah surrounded by tubers and then they put the little crown on her head and pronounce her queen of the mole rats that's sounds both nightmare fuel and adorable yeah i may i think maybe that should be the title of a book queen of the mole rats (laughs) (laughs) what would that be is that like lord of the flies um no i think fairy tale about how you can look different you can be weird looking but one day you'll be queen yeah it could be a kid's book about the wacky natural history of mole rats oh i love it maybe we should not put this out on the radio we should just take this idea for ourselves yeah yeah so unfortunately that doesn't happen. There is no, like, peaceful transfer of power. There are these periods of anarchy where it sort of sorts itself out. They found that during the anarchic periods, I just, I'm loving referring to this as anarchy. It makes more rats sound, like, so metal. There was more variability in several features of their voices. So, essentially, that standardised dialect was breaking down. And then once a new queen was established, this variability went back down and a reliable dialect was detectable again. This study gives us some ideas about a couple of things. So firstly, how important communications are for maintaining social order in cooperative societies. And then secondly, 
how much the queen's presence controls that order, specifically in Naked Mole Rats. Mm. I mean, she is in charge. Yeah. Does this make you love Naked Mole Rats even more? Or are you now thinking about how they just sound like oppressed servants of a tyrannical regime? (laughs) This might ruin our book idea. This doesn't end like a nice story. She is then like in charge. How do we explain to the kids about the whole breeding system? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought that through. I mean, for me, as someone who works on insects, you know, I mean, insects are the kings and queens of weird breeding systems and bizarre societies. So I love mole rats just because they're so weird for a mammal and because they're doing all of these things that otherwise only seem to be possible in insects or invertebrates at least. Okay, well, I just want to say... While you've been talking, I've been Googling. Turns out there's already a Naked Mole Rat Kids book. Oh no, yeah, we've it's been, been to it. We got scooped by someone who thought of it way earlier than us. <laughs> it's called Naked Mole Rat Gets Dressed and it's available in paperback. And it's about a mole rat called Wilbur who's different and he likes to wear clothes and the other naked mole rats are scandalised. Oh, this uh-huh. sounds really good actually. Like, this sounds better. Yeah, I still like the title Queen of the Mole Rats though. <laughs> Maybe we'll see if we can do a sequel with... Uh, Who's the author? Mo Willems. We'll get in touch with them. Animal Etymologies. So yet again, I think I've got a doozy of an animal etymology for you. What do you think Neoclinus blanchardi is the scientific name for? No idea. It's a type of blenny fish. Oh, okay. Neoclinus comes from the two Greek words, neos, meaning new, and clinine, meaning to slope. And this is because of the shape of part of the skull in fish of this genus. And Blanchardi is in honour of the man who found it, whose surname was Blanchard. So, this isn't super exciting, and you're probably wondering why I chose such a boring name and then proceeded to rush through it, right? Yes. You're like, dude, I knew you were running out of time, but really, could you have tried a bit better? (laughs) That's it. We're done for this section. Let's move on. (laughs) There was a guy called Blanchard. There was a fish, whatever. No, it's because I'm actually far more excited by its common name. Okay, which is? Neoclinus Blanchardi is better known as the sarcastic fringe head, (laughs) which is pretty much a perfect description of me as a teenager. Have you ever heard of a sarcastic fringe head? No, I haven't. It's a medium-sized fish growing just up to 30 centimetres, but it has a big attitude. Now, the fringe head part of the name comes from the fact that they have these small, floaty, fringe-like appendages above their eyes. But the sarcastic part is to do with their behaviour. We might think of sarcastic as meaning someone with a blunt, mocking, ironic sense of humour. Like you. Granted, like me on occasion. But the word sarcastic originally comes from the ancient Greek word sarcazo, meaning to tear flesh like dogs. Oh. And that original meaning is more appropriate for this fish. It doesn't have a biting sense of humour, but it does have one hell of a bite. It has a set of needle-sharp teeth and it isn't afraid to use them either on other species or its own. The sarcastic fringe head lives in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of America, and it lives in shelters, either uninhabited shells, abandoned burrows, and sometimes even inside human waste like cans. It is intensely territorial and will lie in its shelter and attack anything that comes into its line of sight, whether that's prey, another sarcastic fringe head, or, on occasion, an unlucky scuba diver. Weird. Yeah. When they're threatened by a competitor, they start their warning off by opening their massive jaws, which fan out sideways. You need what? to Google sarcastic fringe head. Okay, I'm going to do this now. Yeah. Oh, they are weird looking. I know. <gasps> oh, wow. Okay, that is 
That is bizarre. So I've just Googled it, and the first lot of photos that, that comes up are like, well, that's a kind of weird-looking fish. And then you scroll down, and the, like, the it, jaws. it's like a, yeah, a double-sided sort of flange that opens round and is kind of rainbow-coloured. It's like a proper funnel head, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, so they show off these massive jaws if they get a competitor coming towards them. Yeah. If that doesn't work, they go into mouth-to-mouth combat with both sarcastic fringe heads shoving their massive jaws together in what apparently looks like a making-out sesh. <laughs> and then they get their teeth involved. To be fair... They have a lot to fight for. Good shelters are prime real estate and it's the males that find and guard the shelters and the females that come to the shelters lay their eggs there and then the male guards them until they hatch. So if a male doesn't defend his territory, he won't have anywhere to attract the ladies to. Ah. So there you have it. No Greek mythology for this week. Just a really grumpy fish with a bad haircut. Isolation Recommendations So from grumpy fish to you in lockdown, surprisingly <laughs> similar... What have you got to recommend people this week? Okay, well, a little while ago, I spotted a tweet by Butterfly Conservation Europe about a free card game from the European Commission called Know Your Pollinators. Oh, that sounds like nerdy fun times. (laughs) Yeah. So this is basically a version of Top Trumps with cards for 32 different species of pollinating insects covering bees, beetles, butterflies, moths, flies, sawflies, thrips and wasps. Mm. So it's not just bees that do the pollinating. There's a whole community out there. Each colourful card has a picture of the species and various facts about it. And then there's some additional information on the cards at the end about pollinators, why they're important, why they're in danger, and what we can do to conserve them. There are also other ideas for activities for both adults and kids to enjoy, to learn about and to help pollinators. And the really great thing is that this can be downloaded for free. Oh, okay, so you just print this, do you? Yeah, you just print, yeah, go onto the European Commission's website. I'll put a link into the podcast description. You go onto their website and you download it as a PDF. And then print it. And I, I guess preferably onto card so that it's a bit more solid. Um, can, I, can I raise an issue here? You will put it into the podcast description. That's an interesting terminology. I mean, that's just a shorter way of saying I will send you a link to put into the podcast description then. I'm very if that's the way you. you prefer it. <laughs> Do carry on. It can be downloaded for free from the European Commission's website in... 23 different languages oh that's so cool yeah is it like eu languages yes yeah so they're all yeah they're all european languages but i i don't know whether that's every language in the european union i'm guessing it's probably not but it's all the major ones so it's it's sort of freely available for anyone to use and learn about pollinating insects across europe and also learn their languages because i'm doing german classes at the moment nobody has taught me the word for wasp yeah so maybe we need to do this and we need to do it in english and german and then when you've mastered that I don't know, we'll try Bulgarian. Yes, love it. I just thought with Spring on the Way, this game seems like an ideal way to pass the time in the last few weeks of lockdown and to nerd out a little bit before getting outside to enjoy the natural world again. Mm, I can't wait. I'm so excited for spring. As you know, I'm not much of a Christmas person, but spring is my Christmas. Yeah, spring is the best time of year. What's your recommendation? Well, in a hark back to question one of the quiz, this week I'm going to recommend NASA's Perseverance web pages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Head over to mars.nasa.gov forward slash Mars 2020 and you'll find tons of facts about the mission, the videos and photos from the landing, which are incredible, by the way. I mean, you know how I got choked up a few weks ago about the space haggis? Yeah. I'm going to say it. 
This is perhaps even a bigger deal than that. <gasps> no. Yeah, I know, right? Don't tell... Who were the people who did the same Simon Howie. Simon Howie. Don't tell those guys. I've switched my allegiances to NASA. <laughs> as a vegetarian, we're also shocked. And as well as all that very cool but serious sciencey stuff, there's also some really silly, fun stuff on there too. I am a particular fan of the Mars photo booth. If you follow us on social media, you might have seen a photo I posted of Suki on Mars that went on our Instagram and our Twitter. Well, it amused me no end. Basically, it gives you a choice of Martian landscapes and you can upload any photo of your choice with a person or an animal in it and it photoshops them onto the landscape. Like, I know it sounds basic, but I had so much fun with it. Just adding stupid photos to the surface of Mars. It's it's really funny. It's I, th- really I think I think one of my the Suki one was really good. We all you also found a really good one with a photo of my dad running doing it doing a ten k race, and it it's just cropped it perfectly. It genuinely looks like he's running across the surface. It's of really Mars. good cropping. I mean, I know that yeah. maybe we shouldn't be surprised that NASA can do tacky things quite well. <laughs> It's really impressive. And going back to what we were saying before, you can also listen to different sounds like birdsong, music and human voices and hear how they might sound on Mars. I thought you were going to say birdsong from the surface of Mars. I was like, I I think you've lost it. (laughs) So this is like based on our knowledge of the atmosphere and how sounds might sound differently there to how they do here. Okay. And you can even record your own message on Mars. Mm, and see how your voice would sound. Actually, I'm not going to give away what the differences are because I think people should go and try it. It's quite yeah. fun. I don't know whether I would have found the photo booth and the recordings quite so amazing in normal times, but in a year when you can't even go on holiday, there's something pretty fun about virtually transporting yourself or your cat to Mars. Yeah, definitely a good a good half hour or so of entertainment of seeing what photos we could find to stick onto the Martian <laughs> surface. <laughs> Well, that's all we got time for today. But remember that you can get in touch with us between shows. We're on Twitter at Lockdown Science, on Instagram at Lockdown Science Podcast, and you can email us at Lockdown Science Podcast at gmail.com. Get in touch to say hi, tell us what you think of the episode, or recommend a fun study that you found that you think deserves a spot on a future episode. We genuinely love listener submissions and your nice emails make our day. Yeah, and the other thing you can do if you have something nice to say about us is rate us on Apple Podcasts. Having lots of nice ratings and reviews is the best way to support the podcast because it helps new people to find us. And going back to the Instagram and Twitter accounts, remember that we've got a little competition going because it's me running the Twitter account and it's Ellie running the Instagram. Currently, I think I'm ahead. You're definitely ahead. I'm not even going to look right now, but you're definitely ahead. And we're using the excuse of, well, there are just more scientists on Twitter. That's absolutely not true. It's just that we know more scientists on Twitter. I know that Instagram has a really good scientist base. I just haven't tapped them yet. So if you want to give Ellie a little bit of support, check us out on Instagram and give us a follow. If you want to help sustain my lead, then give us a follow on Twitter. Or you know what? Just follow both of us. This doesn't have to be a competition. Follow follow whichever one you happen to have an account for. You know what? Lockdown is hard. We don't need to make war like this. <laughs> and of course, alongside that, tell your friends and family about it. Tell your cat. If they're anything yeah. like Suki, they'll probably stare at you with contempt, but we'll appreciate it anyway. And make sure you tune in in two weeks' time for another episode of Lockdown Science on Cam FM. <laughs>